I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Noco Moto Podcast, episode number 70, the big 7 0. If this were like anniversaries or, or birthdays, what would this be? Like the. You know how like they have like the velvet anniversary or the the pearl anniversary or the whatever. What would seventy be? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. I it's our septuagenarian episodes we're in now, right? Something like that. Is that right? Septuagenarian at seventies, right? I believe so. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. It, it, the podcast would be old enough for it to be appropriate to order red velvet cake at a hotel restaurant. Yes. Well, you know, if you think about how many episodes the average podcast has, I mean, quite often, you know, you get into like three or four hundreds. This is, this is like starting to get on a little bit. I mean, 70 is really in podcast years, you know, about like 17, you know, we can't buy beer yet, but there's a couple weird spots we can buy smokes. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. All right. So I'm your host, Moto G Pete, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. And you know what? I'm not even I'm I'm not even gonna talk about sunshine. It's not happening. Moving on. So we're coming to you from our Nokomoto slash Moto One Podcast Network headquarters. And they just installed a new fountain today. So, you know, so you might hear some construction crews in the background, but the office is getting fancy as fuck, I'll tell you what. Right. So uh list table of contents for this episode. We're gonna do our emails, we're gonna do best worst bike, and then all right, after I say this, don't turn the episode off. I promise it's going to be interesting and fun for everyone. We're gonna talk about helmet laws, but we're gonna talk about it in a way you've never heard anyone else talk about it before. I promise. This is not gonna be a preachy episode. And then I think we're going to do some fun facts on helmet safety ratings as well. What about the Nikon? Well, that's part of emails. Okay. We're going to get to that soon, okay. trust me. And then if we got time, I think we should cover some MotoGP from Le Mans as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's do the emails and the Nikon first. Because emails this week basically are the, is the Nikon. Uh, do you want to start with Best Worst Bike? Should we do that? I think we should. All right, let's do that then. All right. So we are going to do our signature segment, best and worst bike in the world this week. Here's the disclaimer for everybody. I know you've heard it before, but I think people like hearing the disclaimer. Okay. So every week, me and Swiggy each pick a different motorcycle, alternating who is proposing the best and worst bike in the world this week. We do not know what each other have chosen. It's a surprise. And it's just a fun way to talk about two different motorcycles that you might not normally take a second look at. So there's no need to just run out and buy a gun and trying to find our address when you get upset inevitably about whatever weird opinion we've decided to adopt for the purposes of the segment. Now, keeping that in mind, two things you can just, you know, pop that pressure release valve on your feelings a little bit and send us an email to contact at nokomotopodcast.com or oh, if you take a look 
on the swing arm of your motorcycle, it lists your tire pressures, the sizes, and below that, there's a required warning from the government where it says there's no crying in motorcycles. So with all that in mind, let's get into it. What you have best bike in the world this week, don't you, Swigs? Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. So, and the best bike in the world this week is? The Genuine Scooter Company's G400C. I've been wondering when we were going to talk about this. I've heard great things. Right. So, this bike, it's a 400cc single with dual exhausts, somewhat classically styled, for about $4,600. And it has 26 horsepower and 22 foot-pounds of torque. And... Overall, people have been really loving this, and it's coming in at a great price point. It's very well made. It kind of gets the job done, and it comes in a style that's very much in that kind of classic UJM styling that a lot of people are going for in their retro models. It's somewhere between 60s Triumph and, and uh, yeah, like CB cb 500 sort of yeah so this is actually a little bit more interesting than that now this is a chinese bike for all intents and purposes yes this is made in china but it's actually a very reliable chinese motorcycle well because it's essentially a honda motor isn't it it is yes well so it's still a chinese built motor but it is licensed from Honda because this is the motor out of the 02 to 06 Honda CB 400 SS, which is a 397cc JDM bike. Oh, see, I thought it was the dirt bike motor. Uh, no, that's I thought a, it was the CRF 400 motor. Oh, well, that's a 450. It's out of this bike. Oh, okay. So you're basically getting a rebadge of a... Honda CB400 SS. Yes. I did not know the CB400 SS even existed. Okay, I'm learning something. This is fun. Right. So if you think about getting a Chinese bike, most people are say, just don't, don't even bother. Right. Go use, get something older that you would get for around the same price point as buying Chinese new. Because it's just, you have no idea what you're getting. It's not going to be good. There are some, like, Tao Tao's that some people swear by. And they're kind of, some brands are starting to build a reputation Mm -hmm. and become available. Benelli's trying to do a lot with that. But what's great about this is when you think about stuff from China... It's a little weird because the Chinese make a lot of excellent stuff. The problem is in almost entirely in their mentality of trying to shave off each little bit they can and cut a cost anywhere they can. And that leads to kind of a what we would normally build to last becomes sort of a disposable product. But you don't have to worry about that 
because while it's Chinese made, it's Honda engineered. Right. So they said that because this is all based off of the 400 SS, which in itself has a lot of really old parts, supposedly you could swap the whole front end of on this with uh, a CB350 front end. You have access to Honda OEM and aftermarket parts because this is so similar to a Honda. Wow. Yeah. So this is basically, with fuel injection, a way to step back in time. And uh, you have all the... Uh, okay. Okay, I'm uh, so many. My brain is just exploding with so many realizations. There's no reason to buy an old Honda CB350. You gain everything just buying this instead. It's like an alternate universe where an old, perfectly restored CB350 just has fuel injection. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's zero reason because you might get an old CB350 or 400 or whatever for two grand in pretty decent shape, but it's not brand new, right? And it's going to cost you two grand in just random bullshit. So why not just spend the $4,600, have something new? You've got the Honda parts support. You've got some warranty, and it's it it looks the business. Yeah, if you've ever seen one of these in person... The fit and finish is comparable to one of the big four. It's it's right up there. And considering you're getting, you know, twin silencer exhausts, you're getting chrome fenders, you know, things that we don't think of as like premium features, but it's hard to find this kind of bike for like under five grand. If you look at like the the SR four hundred that that oh Yamaha wants like $6,500 for. Yeah. This has 10% more torque and horsepower. And you actually get an electric start with it. It's more maintainable. It's easier to get parts for. It's cheaper. It kind of does everything for you. Because this bike is excellent for all the reasons that the sr400 sucks yeah because the sr400 it's not the real deal if you're an old school rider who remembers the sr500 and wants something like that right at the same time it's too expensive for what it is and if you're a new rider it's too much money to pony up for for what you're getting yeah. And it's also very non-user friendly, especially if you're a brand new rider and you get that as your beginner bike, you stall it in an intersection cuz you've only got right like 19 foot-pounds of torque and now you've got to kickstart it in an intersection. Yeah. It's not a fun time. You don't really have that problem cuz one this is a little bit easier to ride with that extra bit of torque, but also you still have the electric start. I like it. The Honda licensed engine really is a big part of this. Yeah. It's not a Chinese motor based on it. It's under license. So since it's being made under license, they have to 
conform to all the specs of the Honda engine. So it's not like they bought a Honda design and then they just tweaked it for their own purposes, right? So the big problem with Chinese manufacturing is they will they they the Chinese manufacturing specializes in high volume production. So if they can save 5 cents on even something like an engine, that equates to a lot of money. So they will take the specs down on something constantly, saving pennies here and there, and ultimately uh, taking off a lot of cost on the end. And they'll do this like without telling anybody. And then they'll be like, oh, look, like we saved all this manufacturing costs. Like, aren't we great? They'll expect the people that they were producing this for to be happy about it. And they're like, no. It was made with these specs for a reason, right? If it's being made under license, part of that license is going to be, no, you can't fuck with it. You right. have to make it. You can't change the spec, right? So when that's being done, the Chinese are very, very good at manufacturing and can manufacture things to a very high degree. If you don't believe me, think about the iPhone that you're listening to this show on or the Android you're listening to this show on. Exactly. It's proof of how the Chinese can actually manufacture things very well when they're held to a very tight license agreement. So you theoretically could expect, I guess you could call it iPhone reliability out of this motor in a sense or Honda reliability with the, you know, the sort of backing of the, this kind of Chinese agreement of manufacturing. It's, there's a reason to believe this is more reliable. Yes. Now I'm sure there will be some, there will be some chintzy stuff on there that will fall apart. Cause then after that they were like, well, whatever, we'll just put whatever grips on or something. Yeah. The coating on the exhaust might be total garbage. There's going to be a few things in there that aren't, honda spec that they've put on it that may go bad but you are absolutely getting what you're paying for yeah yeah it, it's a forty six hundred dollar bike let's not forget about that but i i don't see a universe in which someone should buy this versus one of the newer efi royal enfield bullets yeah you're gonna get highway capable performance if just barely wouldn't really want to do a road trip on this on 75 mile an hour highways but yeah you can do a 65 mile an hour commute pretty comfortably and it comes at a great price point if you want to learn how to work and do your own on a bike and do your own maintenance it's a very simple bike and the styling is honestly fantastic. It's a great looking bike. Yeah, it's it's very tasteful in its throwback elements, right? The last episode we were complaining about the BMW and how it's being very Instagrammy about its throwbackness apparently. This is just straight ahead. There's nothing fancy. It's just this is how bikes used to be. Here you go. We are just simply delivering that we're gonna kind of hide the fuel injection part of this a little bit 
It's not like we're going to say it's fuel injected. We're not going to be proud. You know, we're not going to do the fake carburetor thing. We're just going to kind of put that out of view a little bit, not talk about that part of it. But people care about that less and less anymore. Yeah, it's it's a $4,600 motorcycle, and it's everything you could possibly expect out of one and more. I People have been trying to hit this formula for a long time and missing Royal Enfield's had a few goes at it. Yamaha's had a few goes at it. Suzuki's had a few goes at it. Honda never really tried it much themselves. Yeah, they've always kind of had the... Because they've always had the JDM bikes that are... Because 400cc is right at the limit for them, everything they've produced in that bracket has kind of been a little bit of a premium because that's the upper bound but that's also kind of a, a bounds at which you can kind of start making those highway capable machines. But specifically the throwback cheap bike. Mm-hmm. It, well, part of the market for this bike is to try to get some old guys to buy another motorcycle when they thought they'd bought their last one. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll bite on this because it's how bikes used to be, right? You should get, you should spend an extra. Well, I mean, how much how much more is this than a monkey bike? Um, like maybe eleven hundred dollars, and you can do so much more with it. Yeah, and if you wanted to, you could actually make this into a scrambler. Yeah, it'd be it'd, it'd actually be just be... as useless as an old CL three fifty, but it would look yeah. the part. Yeah, you could get high pipes for this and all of that. Absolutely. I mean, you're just playing a fashion game, but at least you're not in. You're not throwing that much money at it. I yeah yeah, it's yeah it's it it falls into that price range where it could be some old fogey's second or third bike when he thought he bought his last. You know, he goes out and he buys his 1250 GS, and then he thinks, oh well, I actually you know I kind of want a little around town thing as well, and this is like what I had back in the day and I'll pick this up. You know, that that's, it fits into that price range, but it also fits into the kind of the, the young professional who's getting his first bike and he doesn't want to buy used cause he doesn't really know too much about bikes and he wants something that he knows will be reliable. So he'll go for, he wants to buy new, but he doesn't want to take out a loan to buy it. Well, you know what? The most important thing about this bike really is that because it's hit the formula and it's cheap enough and it's going to be reliable enough. I mean, it's already proving to be reliable enough. Haven't these been sold under a different name in Europe for like two or three years already? Uh, I know they're sold. This motor has been sold in ridiculous numbers. I feel like this company I heard somewhere has a different name and it's already been in the UK for two years or something like that. But anyway, it, the track record, it's we're already seeing evidence that it is what it's promised it was going to be. Now, so people are buying these instead of going into the hopeless, the hopeless restoration project. And because this is a new bike and it's fuel injected and it's got the disc brakes and all the brake lines and all the wiring is brand new and everything. Even if people are going to make classic mistakes 
in buying motorcycles and going for the retro dream rather than the right bike or making horrible quote unquote investments and their lifestyle and this and that, whatever, it's going to be a long time before these bikes become a burden to anybody else. Yeah. All of a sudden, Hey, if you want to buy a motorcycle just to look like retro and hipster, get this one. you're not ruining a motorcycle, right? You're not going to, you know, if you do chop something up, it's not old, whatever, go ahead, chop it up. You're not defacing anything, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone could make all the fashion and customization mistakes that they want to this. And all of a sudden I don't care anymore. Yeah. Cause it's, it's something that, that should be very reliable but it's also not disposable. Right. The CB350, even in its day, was kind of a disposable commodity. Yeah, they didn't really expect people to be operating them in 2019. Yeah, and it, it, it is important to note that this is not this is not competing with Ducati Scrambler or Triumph Bonneville. This is competing with SR500 with CB350, with GS400. With monkey bikes. There's a lot yeah. of crossover of the monkey bike market on this too. Yeah, I like this. I, I would consider this, honestly, just for something to, to take to work and back around town, whatever, like situations where I'm not going to be going all that fast or care. I mean, why not? There's nothing wrong with this. If uh, Steve with the with the bullet and he bought this instead of the Royal Enfield. I'm a, you know, he's had to put a lot of time and money and things into that bullet. Like he kind of would have, he would have had a lot more riding time and about broken, even doing this instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing I do like about this bike is that it does have the electric start, but it also has a kickstart and the kickstart in this day and age, very much unnecessary, but you know what? It's impossible to not feel cool. It's true. Kicking a bike over. Absolutely. I, I so agree. It may be a bunch of extra weight. It may be unnecessary, but it's it's always fun. Yeah, I can't find a problem with this. Like, I don't care that it doesn't have super duper suspension or whatever. That's not, it's, it's not making any claims. Everything that it does, it excels in. It doesn't do a lot of things. But the few things it does, it does really well. Cool. All right, we ready to move to worst bike? I think so. Okay. The worst bike in the world this week, the Honda CBR 300R. What year? Any year. So I'm going to make an interesting claim. The CBR 250R is fucking awesome or was and the cbr 300r is a motorcycle for vegans okay so (laughs) now the cbr 250r came out in 2011 and they just made it for a couple years because at that time like back in 2011 we still had the ninja 250 which was really the same Ninja 250 it had always been. Mm-hmm. And Honda was made the CBR 
250R as what was essentially a hot super bike in Malaysia. Yeah. In Malaysia, the CBR 250R and in Japan and other Southeast Asian markets was a big deal. Like it was hot shit. It was like the new one liter bike, you know, the R1 in other places. It this was the greatest thing ever. But Honda was already starting to move in 2011 to this idea of world model bikes. And they thought, well, just for fun, since really the only other thing like this in a lot of other markets is the Ninja 250, let's just go ahead and sell it there anyway. It really doesn't cost us that much to do this. It's going to be hard for us to lose money trying this out. Now, everything about the 250R is a genius move. They brought out the 250R with the Honda VFR styling, and I found this whole thing about how they did it where Honda was in this mode of going with like being five years behind car styling and everything. And this is just true with motorcycle styling and car styling. You can track this all throughout. Motorcycle styling tends to be a few years behind the basic concepts of car design at any given point. Mm -hmm. So around 2011, um, they're saying, well, cars are kind of less sleek. They're just, you know, bulky is the thing, whatever. If you look at a VFR 1200, you know, they say um, it, it, it was designed to look less like an arrow and more like a hammer Mm -hmm. or the hammers replaced the arrow was the idea. And I mean, who knows what it even is now? I don't know what the current terms and the way they're describing the styling is, but you know, if you look at say a, at a Yamaha MT-09, it's very much like a Lamborghini looked five, six, 10 years ago. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. So, you know, now really, really high end cars are kind of going real rounded and sleek. So you can probably expect super bikes to go real rounded, a little more 90s ish in a few years. So anyway, the styling that everything about the 250R was designed to, to be in Malaysia or wherever the hottest, most cutting edge looking fastest high performance super bike for that market it was just a top of the mountain sort of thing the power for it was really good for the displacement here's what you need to know about the honda cbr 250r insanely over square the bore is some was something like 45 percent wider than the stroke or larger than the stroke Okay, so it's like a, a race spec bore and stroke. Yes, right. It, and I, I test rode one when they came out, and I test rode a CBR300R when they came out as well. The power, the experience isn't that much difference. They both have this ridiculously narrow power band. If you know what you're looking at, if you know what you're experiencing when you're on it, you're kind of like, oh... This isn't really a beginner's bike. That's not very forgiving. You have to just hit the power, your gear changes. You really, to keep the power going, because there's not that much of it, you, you kind of have to know what you're doing. Right. Or you're going to have to learn very quickly. So the CBR250R is awesome. Now, this weird thing happens where all of a sudden, well... 
everyone looks at Honda go Honda's selling the CBR 250R in the states what's going on should we be selling a 250 well if we're going to sell a 250 we might as well sell like a 300 or 350 and get the scoop on them right so immediately the arms race begins Kawasaki goes well we better bump up the Ninja 250 to the Ninja 300 and give it a redo in everything like let's do that pronto we have owned this market forever guys we'd better start the arms race and then here comes the R3 and then there's the KTM and all this now it's this crowded market right well all the 250R was supposed to be was we'll just make it available in the US and Canada and Europe. No one really cares about this kind of bike. Now, they kept selling the 250R in Japan and Malaysia. Everywhere else that they continued to sell it, they boarded out to the 300 to try to get it to market with the Ninja 300 and now the Ninja 400 and the R3. And it went from being the coolest, most powerful, awesome bike of a category to being the lamest bike in the category. It was this totally unique thing in the American market, this little hot 250 single. And now all the other bikes in the class are more displacement, more power, more torque, more cylinders, more just better, more forgiving, more they they actually have a racing category for those ones now you can't race a ninja a cbr 300r not at all yeah that doesn't fit in anywhere it's it's over 250 and it's the worst of the under 400 right class. all they did was take the 249 cc engine and bore it out to like 287 or something like that right and not only that, but it's begat other bullshit things as well. Like, why is there even a Rebel 300 with the same motor? Why? Who fucking wants a Rebel 300? Do yourself somebody. a favor and get the Rebel 500. There's no reason to buy a Rebel 300 instead of a 500. I've been on the other end of this conversation. It's 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 a tough one to... It's so, hard to relate. So anyway, the Ninja 300 sucks. So, you know, now there's this whole like smaller category of bikes. So if you're a person who buys a um who buys a Ninja 300R, this is why it's a vegan motorcycle. Inadvertently when the CBR 250R came in and revitalized this whole category of bike, it coincided with this strange thing that's happening in our society, which is we're not really valuing big aspirational items anymore. We're not calculating social hierarchy with money or possessions like we classically did. Okay. Mm. So if you show off with your car, that's not really fashionable anymore. You know, having big extravagant things is not what you show off with. If you take a picture or uh, if you, you know, Instagram accounts where people are taking photos of themselves out hiking in various exotic locations are much more popular than people taking pictures of themselves with expensive cars. Yeah. Okay. So, now, we know it still takes money and whatever, but it's not, 
you know, like no one has the time and the money to go do all these things and take those pictures of themselves. Right. So that's why it seems kind of elitist and, and, um, it gives you that social status because people think, oh, I wish I could take that trip and do that thing, right? Mm-hmm. So this other weird thing has happened where you can now gain social status through just your opinion. How many issues can I be on, quote, the right side of? Now, it's very good to be on the right side of things like you know, social issues and whatever, but it's become stylized, okay? Mm-hmm. So now it's like, you know, a very small version of this in the motorcycle world has been, well, you can't buy a 600 for your first bike, right? Yeah. So every, so these people get pushed towards CBR 300s, right? And it's like, aren't I so great? I've got a 300 because it's all I need, don't you know? My little commuter motorcycle, I'm using less gas, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? It's kind of like being vegan. It's going... I'm doing with less. Aren't I so smart? Because there's no reason for this bike to exist in the American market otherwise. It's not making that statement very hard. There aren't a lot of people repping their lean lifestyle with their Ninja 300 very hard. But since it's in no category with another bike actually... There's no reason to have one other than you're intentionally opting for less. Yeah, well, I don't recall these really being all that much cheaper than the than the 500 are. Well, no, because there's still a base cost it takes to make a motorcycle like no matter what, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the the R3, the Ninja 400 are actually much larger capacity in multi-cylinder motorcycles even though and higher compression and a little bit more fleshed out so the only reason at the end of the day to have a cbr 300r is just to have less to say it gets 80 miles per gallon isn't that awesome i don't need a fast motorcycle because i'm so evolved I've thought about this a lot. There's no reason. There are other bikes that cost exactly the same to purchase that have more. There are other motorcycles that get close to the mileage. There's other motorcycles that cost the same to insure. It's just to be like, I have a small bike because I'm supposedly more evolved and secure in myself or something. It's uncool to have a leader bike now. It's only there to be the opposite spectrum of the uncool, excessive leader bike. CBR 1000 guy is not the coolest kid on the block anymore, right? Just like guy who talks about going to the expensive steakhouse isn't very cool. But Mm -hmm. person who puts up a lot of social media posts about their ultra vegan lifestyle is cooler. Yeah, it's it's. It's very hardcore food truck culture. Uh-huh. Yeah. I told you before the show I had a tie-in for this, and you're like, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to work out. But that's essentially what we're talking about, the vegan motorcycle. It's weird. You'd think the vegan motorcycle's all electric. Mm-mm. Now, there are plenty of people who are uh, you know, on the whatever side of an issue 
for the right reasons, but there are plenty who are doing it simply because it's fashionable, right? Which is why we all think vegans are annoying because it's like, listen, you can't just be that preachy with me just because it's hip to be preachy about something right now. That's the, you know, yeah, it's the, I'm getting the vibe. You're only doing this for this conversation and nothing else. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very fair trade kale. Now there is one situation in which the CBR 300 R is the greatest bike in the world. And that's when you buy one as your first motorcycle that's been crashed and scratched to shit, but it still operates totally fine. And in that case, you're projecting a very different message to the world, which is I enjoy motorcycling so much. I'm willing to drive this unpresentable thing because it only cost me suddenly $900 now. And it's just that cheap, a few years old and whatever. And I'll be upgrading pretty soon. Like you're putting that message out. You're like, when it has the scratches all over the side of it, all of a sudden you're giving the message of like, I'm just making do with this. Trust me. I'm on my way to a leader bike when it's pristine and everything. And you bought it brand new and all of that. It's, aren't I so evolved because again, you're not repping that message real hard, but it's the only message that's going out because there's no logical reason to buy this instead of an R three instead of a Ninja 400 instead of just about anything that's a two fifty or whatever. Yeah. Also kind of on the, the used on the used market when it's a few years old and it's beat to shit. This seems like it is an an excellent bike to Plasti Dip. Yeah. And again, you know, the 250R, just that little difference of this being bored out, it went from being the most badass, I am a super bike sort of thing, to being, so you went from the being the best of a category to being the worst of a category by being bored out like 33 cc's. Because they didn't change anything else with it. Yeah. They just bored it out as much as they could to maintain the integrity of the engine and the cooling and all of that just to compete a little bit better with really what are some different class of bikes in the U.S. Yeah, basically just so they could call themselves a 300 in good conscience. Yeah. With some generous rounding up. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I say, and you know, it seems like a little bit of a stretch, this whole like vegan angle. But when you're on one of these, because that narrow power band, I mean, it's 23 horsepower. It's, I want to say it's like 12 foot pounds of torque. There's not a lot of power. So you kind of have to make little deals with your ego when you're riding it, you're like, well, I mean, it's good for what it is. I mean, we, you know, it's, I don't need any more than 23 horsepower. Like you start, I mean, I only test rode them very short and I have to sort of make things of myself. Well, I guess this is all you need. Yeah. Got 600s are excessive. That's too much. No one should have that kind of horsepower. Anyway, all of a sudden you're playing that vegan game in your mind. You are. So there you go. Honda CBR 300R. Worst bike in the world this week. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think 
I think that wraps it up. That's you've really thought a lot about this, haven't you? For days, <laughs> days. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's take a little bit of a break here. We are explorers, adventurers, freedom seekers with a desire to find something more visceral than the road already laid out. Finding new, undiscovered paths through every bend. Getting in touch with a lone wolf inside. No longer caged. Free to grow with every twist of the wrist. Riding gives us focus. Focus gives us clarity. Clarity directs our attention to what matters most. Biker Gear Club's curated boxes gives you the ability to keep you and your machine primed to go wherever you want all year long. Get your box by subscribing at bikergearclub.com. Come ride with us. We're going places. Hey, did we just listen to a 60-second ad spot there, Swiggy? I think we did. I think people would maybe want to know why. So, the good people, specifically Bob, at biker gear club have decided to do a special sponsorship for us which is you go to their site fill out the form and you are entered into a contest to win a box every month there will be a winner a noco motor listener who receives a box from biker gear club you're you're welcome because we're awesome you might get to win a free box. This is just for Nokomoto listeners. Like, if I hear about a Wheel Nerds listener winning one of these boxes, I I will be furious. It's just for <laughs> Nokomoto listeners. I mean, yeah, I guess you could be both a listener of both shows. I would hope so. Don't be leaking this information out. No, leak this information out. Tell everyone you know. Um yeah, I think all they need is your email. I th- believe that's all you need to enter. Probably your name and your email to win- to enter the contest, and that's it. And hey, you probably want to know awesome shit about Biker Gear Club anyway. Go and do it. Sign up for the contest. It supports the show. It's our very first sponsorship of any kind, which is a pretty big deal. And is it really going to hurt you to have a couple in uh, emails in your inbox for the chance to win one of these prize boxes and support your favorite podcast? I don't think so. I think this is a big fucking win for everyone involved. Keep in mind that you will need to be, you will need to reside in either Canada, the U S Ireland, the UK, France, Italy, Sweden, Australia, or Mexico. So those are the eligible countries. Sorry, Spin. Yeah, sorry, Ninja. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, okay. So there we go. Now let's do the emails real quick. All right. So we only have one real topic that came up, and we had a couple of past listeners send us the same video. Yeah, people want to know what I think about this video coming around now talking about the knee cans front end grip versus the grip on the MT-09. <sighs> okay. 
So the the first one we got, we got emails of both kinds. One saying, hey, have you seen this video? Got some better thoughts on the Nikon now, like kind of challenging me a little bit. And we got email on the thing of, hey, look at this total bullshit video. I'm siding that uh, this is a totally bullshit video. We're going to post a link to this video. So first of all, in its conception, this is insane. Okay, so proving that it has more grip than the MT-09 would not prove that overall the two-wheel front design has more grip than a regular motorcycle. We should like, lay out what the what the video actually is about. Okay, you, you do that, Swigs. Tell, tell us. So this is a video from Bike Social, and what they've done is they've taken an MT-09, which the Nikon is based off of, and the Nikon. They've then taken the tires off of the Nikon and put them on the MT-09 so they have the tires with the same kind of grip and the same tread profile. Then they've put outriggers on the bikes so that they can basically dump them in a turn and they won't destroy the bikes. They'll just sit on the outriggers and they can pick them up again. And they go through a wet track to simulate some low-grip scenarios. Now, this is supposed to teach us that the knee can, can potentially, I don't know, corner better? I, I don't know what it's supposed to tell us. It's supposed to go, look, we rode them both through this wet turn, and we're just going to show both of them losing grip at a certain point and then relying on the slider. And then the test rider goes, oh, yeah, the, the knee can... I had to brake way harder in the middle of this turn to get it to slip. So Which, from this, we're supposed to determine that the Nikon has more, quote, grip, has better traction through the corner. Right. Of course, they've got different brakes. They've got different weight distributions. They've got a whole bunch of things about them that are very different in terms of center of gravity, in so many you know they've got different suspension they've they've got different everything when it comes to the front end so if you have to squeeze harder on the brakes that doesn't tell you anything about the amount of braking force being applied through the turn there's no talk of what speeds they were going what whether yeah, were they going the same speeds were they taking the diff the same path through the turn was there the same amount of water on the track with both turns? Was it a sprinkler system or did some dude just sit there with a hose? I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of questions as to, you know, there, there was no answer to the question of does this provide more front end grip where the knee can, can take turns faster or and, and go through a higher lean angle or or anything? None of this was discussed. There was a lot of outrigger talk, though. Yes. So, okay. I So these outriggers that they put on the bikes, right? The little, like, wings that go off on the side. So if the bike, the front end, if the front end washes out, it just leans over and this little contraption coming off the side catches the bike, stops it from crashing. And I've seen these in other videos. You see these for videos for people training at, like, superbike schools and things like that. These are not real common. Basically, motorcycle companies that are testing things have these. 
and high performance motorcycle training programs have these and like no one else like I, I doubt these are manufactured on mass for like someone has to make these special for you I, I wouldn't be surprised if every manufacturer has developed their own and then given them to racing schools and things that they have good relationships with so well yeah because they're dependent on the engine mounting points so it's going to be bike specific at least frame specific uh yeah or specific to a very short you know small amount of frames yeah so i think it's possible that yamaha said to bike social would you like to have some really cool outriggers we'll give them to you and in exchange can you get us one uh, a Nikon video because it seems the public's not real sold on the whole front end grip part of the, our story because they talk a lot about how jazzed they are to have these outriggers and they don't really do a lot of talking about what the video is supposedly about so there might be a little conspiracy going on here not to I mention that given the amount of footage they must have shot to then edit down to this video and how little of it was actual talk of the test and how much was about the outriggers i'm gonna guess that there was a lot more outrigger talk that was cut yes from from this video now I don't have a problem with anything shown in the video per se. What's really suspicious to me is what was omitted, specifically a straight line braking test. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very easy way to measure a lot of how much traction and grip you have, right? This is a whole third of the traction pie, so to speak, right? A very... You know, why have we not seen a straight line Nikon brake test? I think it's because the Nikon doesn't have better braking. Because mm-hmm. you got the two wheels, the two sets of brakes up front, twice the contact patch, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one way to measure your track, if you, if you did have better traction split over the three wheels, well, then that would show in braking. But I think they're afraid to do this because it has such a forward weight bias. Like the front end's really heavy on it. So the back wheel would come up. So it's... Yeah, because it's front and top heavy. Right. Then all of a sudden you're going back to two wheels. You don't have any traction advantage. I think the same dynamic is in play when you're going through a turn. I think you're losing traction on the rear wheel. You've just got the the two front wheels. You, You don't ultimately have more. I think it's maybe changing where you have some traction or something. I, I don't think this is really adding up to more. I think there is one point they can make that makes a lot of sense, which is you're not going to have more traction, but basically you you have two front wheels that can take the load. So if one wheel slips, then the other wheel can just take up the rest of the load that a single wheel would have. That makes a lot of sense. And that also makes sense in that if the inside wheel, say, is losing grip and it's taking most of the weight initially because the the suspension is more compressed, then as it starts to give, you get lots of warning because you're going to feel all of that weight and all that pressure. Like you're going you're gonna to feel all that grip transfer to the outer wheel. 
and it's only until both wheels go that the bike is going to drop. That doesn't mean that you're going to be able to actually take the turn tighter because overall you're still not going to have more grip, but you're going to have more warning. So that does make sense. But it doesn't really matter, and it doesn't matter for two reasons. One is if you just go buy an MT-09, which is cheaper, looks better, is way cooler, and is easier to maintain, it has more than enough traction to do any cornering on public roads that you can responsibly do. On top of that, you can take that to the track, and it's kind of a legit bike to do a track day on. What are you going to compare a Nikon to on the track? Nothing. Nothing, yeah. It's, it's trying to do its own thing, so there's no classification. There's no way to compare it to riding another a normal bike. It's just a, its own oddity. Well, let's take this as well. I mean, because it's sad enough that Yamaha is getting people to do these kinds of videos to try to help convince us that there's more traction. Let's say there is. It must be by the smallest margin. Because, yeah, there's two wheels, but there's a lot more weight up front as well. So if there, so if there is more grip, that grip has to support more weight. So there's not really any more traction, right? This mm. traction thing is really about a ratio, Right There's the stickiness, and then there's what the stickiness has to support. If the bike only weighed five pounds, you would need less grip to keep the same amount of traction or whatever, however you want to say it, right? Mm -hmm. But the bike weighs a lot more than five pounds. It's, get, it's like 500 and something. So there's this, they, they go over it, they gloss over it very quickly in the video where they're like, well, yeah, it's got two wheels, but it's got more weight. And the test rider is like, yeah, you know, so you need more traction to support the more weight. I don't know. And they just kind of go through, you know, but it is complicated. So if they've determined that it does have more traction in this setup, it's only by the smallest margin. Or they would have told us, they would have given us a test that demonstrated it. Exactly. So what we can determine is, well, we know the bike's heavier and it's got more weight to manage up front. We know it, it behaves a little bit differently from a regular motorcycle. Not radically, though. We know that you've got three tracks going down the road instead of one. So you're more likely to hit potholes and things. We know that maintaining the suspension on this is going to be impossible versus regular motorcycles you're not going to find a mechanic to touch this we know it's expensive we know it's slower because it's heavier it has lots of downsides and maybe one possible minute benefit it's bullshit you're also just going to get glares and dirty looks every time you pull into the dealership for a warranty service. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're not going to make friends with this motorcycle. It's it's total garbage. My, my feelings on it have not changed at all. It's stupid. Okay. So that takes care of emails, basically, except we also got a nice little thing from Nick also saying that apparently the uh, Melbourne Grom community totally has validated all of my views on the Honda Monkey Bike. Yep. Pretty much. 
Uh, he was also talking about uh, his Grom. Uh, let's see. We were talking about the modding culture with it. Yeah. So his bike that he rode off got repaired for 200 bucks, 16 hours of work. So, okay, more than 200 bucks. Okay. But, but yeah, that's awesome that he was able to buy back his own bike and fix it up. Apparently, for insurance purposes, he can't swap out the motor, uh, and his piston rings went. So, it would have been dumb not to do a big bore kit on it. Yeah. So, now he's got a 181cc Grom, which is pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. Uh, And then... Yeah, he's just got some photos. Oh, yeah, and then he's just linked a couple of couple of grom photos from him and his buddies in the in his little biker gang yeah well what his email brings to light is one of the reasons that groms have a lot of value retention they don't make any sense as a short-term buy because it's kind of a lot of money for what the bike is but if you plan on holding on to it for a while and really becoming a Grom enthusiast and joining a Grom gang and doing Grom track things, it kind of makes a lot of sense because you can get into all these things for very, very little money compared to doing all these track things with a 600 or a leader bike, say. And there's a big, and all these things that exist because there's a big community around it because it's a less expensive bike to begin with. And so people that do buy them tend to hold on to them. So there's not that many used ones to buy. Therefore, they have high retention with the value. So the whole story makes a lot of sense once you realize, oh, well, someone would just outgrow a 125. There should be loads of them cheap on the market. Well, no, you kind of get to do a lot of things with this bike. So it ends up being a pretty good value. Maybe not for not what the machine is, but all the things it lets you do. You can't really do with other 125 vehicles. Right. That was pretty sweet. So there we go. Thanks, Nick. So now we need to get on to our discussion of the helmet laws. So before you think we're going to get super opinionated, we're really not. Here's what we're going to do. First thing we're going to do is give you our position on helmets, which is not very controversial. And then what we're going to go through is all the arguments that are for and against helmet laws. And we're going to give all of them equal time and examine, Do any? does any of this make any sense at all? Because some of it does and some of it doesn't. Now, our official position on helmet laws right now is that we really don't have one. Yeah, we really don't care about helmet laws. We're super big on wearing helmets, but... As to being forced to or not to for, not be forced to, in terms of being forced to or not being forced to wear helmets by law, no real strong opinions. Right. Now, I will say that we have a strong enough opinion on wearing a helmet, a full face helmet, every time you ride, is strong enough that I'm not even sure if I want to go on rides with other people who don't have full face helmets, you know, all the time. Like, I'm that strong about it. You really should. And this isn't a debate over whether or not you should wear a helmet. 
Because the answer there is clearly yes. You should wear a helmet, and it should be a full-face helmet, and it should be properly rated. If you don't believe that in this day and age in 2019, I don't know if there's a lot I can do to help you. If you've got a weird conspiracy about higher neck injuries or becoming a vegetable when you should have just died instead or whatever weird mental gymnastics, you're a, you're a bridge too far. But if you're like a normal person, then you've probably got an opinion one way or another on the law itself, which is totally separate from whether or not you should be wearing a helmet. We all know you should. Should you be forced to? That's different. So let's just go through in no particular order some of these pro and con arguments here, Swigs, because they're, they're, they all kind of combine into a few different categories of arguments we found out. We thought like, oh, are there going to be like 50 different arguments we're going to have to like list to go through and tear apart? But there's a few less than we thought. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start with pro We'll go. The first one we'll do is uh, public safety. Motorcycle helmets save lives. Therefore, people should wear motorcycle helmets. Okay. So when people are making the public safety argument, I've seen this written out a few different ways. They say it's proven that motorcycle helmets will make you safer. We should be saving people from themselves. Mm -hmm. That's this argument. For whatever reason, you know, it is dangerous. So when we put this under scrutiny, what happens? Well, where else do we ask people to, you know, where else are we saving people from themselves? Uh, heroin, meth, uh, sniffing paint fumes. Really just class A drugs is really the only area that we do this. I guess you can't in-store booby traps in your own home. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like as, that's kind of it. Yeah, you're not required to wear safety glasses to operate a chainsaw in your backyard. So it's it's kind of an odd one to say that we should save people from themselves. And you might compare this to seatbelts, but seatbelts have a legitimate purpose in protecting the safety of others, which is if you are not wearing a seatbelt, then you become a projectile. So you can endanger other people by not wearing a seatbelt. And in that way, that has some legitimacy. Is it significant? No, but there is an angle there that makes sense. But yeah, in terms of, you know, alcohol consumption, in terms of even just going skiing or riding a bicycle without a helmet, no such laws. You know, there's so many things you can do that are dangerous, but we've selected this one that we need to save you from yourself. It's not a strong argument, and it doesn't really fit in with kind of the American death or freedom culture yeah i agree just just simply because we'd prefer you to doesn't make a lot of sense and this one gains a lot of public uh, a lot of traction when the public in general is asked about this topic and surveyed about it a lot of people who don't ride go oh yeah 
you, you should every every motorcyclist should wear a helmet. And then that answer is just taken, or they say there should be a law and they don't think about it very much. That's taken to be like just translated into we should have a helmet law because it turns out 90% of the public thinks that all motorcyclists should be wearing helmets. Well, they're not really close to the issue in any way. They don't really have a dog in the fight and they don't understand motorcycles. And you think, well, how does that really change this? Well, I, I don't know. It It's like, you know, you, you, you get judged by a jury of your peers, right? It's, it's the, mm-hmm. it's that same part of the constitution here, but we should have informed people on the subject making decisions. We shouldn't be basing any of this off wide public surveys. Yeah. I mean, they're not wrong, but it, it's the, it's the difference between you should wear a helmet. You are an idiot for not wearing a helmet and you have to wear a helmet. There's, there's a, although functionally it's not different. The, the actual reason and the means are different. But so overall, as, as you know what it is, it's non expert witness testimony. Okay. Yeah. So it, 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 you you can't have it. It doesn't, it has no legal, it shouldn't have any legal bearing. Right. Right. Now this is, this is legit in terms of what I think at least 47 states have. Well, if you include helmet laws plus all the states that don't have a helmet law, but do have um, at bare minimum for over 18 uh, an eye protection law, that does serve a, a public interest angle, which is you're not going to be less likely to crash because you wore a helmet, which will protect other people, but you will be less likely to crash as long as you just have eye protection. So it will target the one functional thing that will actually increase everybody else's safety which is you will be less likely to crash if you're not wearing eye protection. Yeah, there's a small thing with larger rocks and things that could hit you in the face and things can get around your glasses and still get in your eyes and and fuck things up, but that's probably small enough to be negligible. Right. Okay, so yeah, just saving people from themselves just because doesn't make any sense because we don't ask people to do that with anything else really, with any other actions or activities. All right, so let's move along. Well, except maybe going off Niagara Falls in a barrel. We don't let people do that. I don't see why not. <laughs> um, I feel like right. that's self-selecting. Right. That's... All right, so let's go to another one. Uh, so this is kind of a mixed bag, but they all kind of fall under the same category. And this is uh, public cost. Okay, public cost is very interesting. So... If you have a crash on your motorcycle and you happen to die on the road, you do incur a massive public cost in many ways. So you're going to crash. Somebody's going to call an ambulance. That ambulance is going to cost a fortune. Doesn't even really matter if you're in America or Canada or in Europe somewhere. The actual financial cost of just getting an ambulance to you and then getting you to the hospital whether you live or die is enormous there's all the trained professionals that have to be paid for there is stopping all the traffic if it's a busy time of day they have to get to the scene they have to shut down the road 
There has to be police on site. You know, fire department's got to come. Yeah. If there's one person who crashes on a motorcycle, you're getting tens of hours each. You're getting, you're getting like 10 hours each of, you know, 30, 40, 50 professionals, like well-paid professionals, plus the economic cost of a traffic jam, plus any uh, investigation, evidence gathering, you know, the accident report and all the bureaucracy that goes with that. If you die, there's a potential homicide investigation. If it's with another driver, there's things that can drag on for years. And it's very plausible that if you crash on a busy road and you die, it could be a multi-million dollar expense to the city. Like that's a, a big reality. So whereas if you were wearing a helmet, even if you got a lot of injuries otherwise, you didn't die. You, you broke some legs. You know, maybe your femur is even cracked, but the ambulance is still called. But they pull you, they get you to the hospital. You've got decent insurance. We're all kind of okay. The road wasn't shut down that long. They pulled the bike off of it. Whereas if you're dead, this is different. Yeah, that trick that generally in any first world country triggers a long process of investigation and analysis and and all sorts and it's just no good. That is just an absolute drain on a city if you have a lot of motorcyclists. So it may be worth them to say if you want to ride a motorcycle and we have to deal with with motorcyclists potentially crashing all the time and we're incurring these huge expenses, then there's a reasonable burden we can place on you to wear a helmet to reduce that or to mitigate that. To give equal time here, does this really hold up? I mean, this is the claim, but does this hold up? Obviously, for every motorcycle that crashes and this happens, there's orders of magnitude more cars right Uh, there may be more bicycle incidents that require investigation i don't know i haven't seen numbers the argument against this is well okay these things happen but does it happen enough that it requires a law i think it's similar to trying to sell a car today without abs and airbags for highway use you know that wouldn't fly in the car industry and there is a bar there that's set in terms of safety to sell a car in the u.s right and this is just taking the view of if you look at safety overall it's kind of treating the helmet like a seatbelt or abs or an airbag and saying this is required from that angle it kind of makes sense. Okay. You know, I mean, yeah, you say it, this can cost a city millions of dollars, but the city's already got a budget sort of built in for this to happen many, many, many times over with cars. So while it is a lot of money, is it making a large impact? I don't know. I don't know the answer there. Like I said, I really just kind of want to pull all these apart and really see what makes sense and what doesn't. Mm. So if we're thinking that you sort of your civic duty to do everything you can to make sure you're not costing whatever city you're in or whatever 
millions of dollars. Um, I guess this naturally flows into the insurance cost argument, which is very similar, but instead of sort of a civic cost, we're talking about just specifically a health insurance cost. And this is a different argument for me because this isn't saying, all right, we're going to take this tax pool and this is going to kind of suck money away indirectly because it's just kind of from a lot of general different funds out of a city or a society. This is going, hey, motorcyclists have accidents that they can't pay for. Everybody's insurance goes up across the bar. Mm -hmm. So that's a little different. That means if you have an accident without your helmet, you're being a dick because it's not pulling money that was already kind of saved up somewhere else. It's next month, everyone else pays more next year. Everyone else pays more. Now this one's interesting because supposedly motorcyclists have about the same ability to pay for their medical costs as everyone else. It's about 1% lower, but it's very similar. So in that case, is it different? Like, does it require another law? Well, I don't know. But then supposedly the total number of costs incurred is slightly less than it is on the average road accident, like a few percent lower. So they're saying, so a lot of motorcyclists are saying, well, this one doesn't hold up because it's less money than car accidents so why are we concerned about this and yeah we have about the same ability to pay just through our regular insurance anyway so what yeah it's kind of a wash to me and it doesn't address whether the government should do it or not or whether the whether you philosophically agree with being forced to or not and it is kind of a wash so not a super strong one yeah, although there is another side to this saying, well, you know, insurance costs are kind of outrageous anyway. I mean, they are. So anything we can do to bring those down would be pretty sweet. Yeah. So, I mean, but that, that's 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 kind of drifting from a rights argument to a utilitarian argument. Which is really what helmet laws are. It is a utilitarian. It, it generally kind of falls between utilitarian for helmets, rights, personal freedoms, no helmet. Well, maybe we should talk about the state's rights argument in all of this as well. Uh, we should. Let's do, let's do one last one. Okay. Which this is the most interesting one that I didn't know about before we looked this up. Okay. Which is that... Helmet laws dramatically reduce motorcycle thefts. Yeah. Yeah, this was crazy. Okay, explain this. So apparently when Texas introduced their helmet law, they saw a decrease of motorcycle thefts by 44% in the following year. And the reason for that is because thieves weren't wearing helmets when they stole motorcycles. So they got pulled over, and then they got caught. Or they never stole them in the first place, because if you ride without a helmet 
in a place where there is a helmet law, you're gonna get pulled over. Yeah, I, that quick. In in Colorado, we don't have a helmet law, but of course you have to have eye protection. I once rode Dad's Ducati, literally, just around the block. I, not figuratively, not like oh, I just went out for five ten minutes on it. Literally, just a quick square around the block got pulled over. Like the cop was like, you didn't have glasses on. I was like, what? I I was, I just did a spin. We just did this little thing to it. I'm just testing it. I, I didn't go anywhere. I, I was in a constant turn lane all the way around this block. (laughs) I never got into traffic. He's like, you know, here's a ticket. I was like, are you kidding me? Right. So, yeah, it's you can't steal a motorcycle if you don't have a helmet. So you so I guess it doesn't stop professional thieves, but it stops opportunist thieves. Right. And it's also for every you know, for every every motorcycle thief that gets caught, that's not one recovered bike. That's like 30 stolen bikes prevented. Cuz it's a very small number of people who steal the majority of the bikes. So every person you catch is kind of a huge win. Yeah. So, and also if you're a motorcycle thief, you probably don't have your shit together. Right. So you're still going to try and steal a bike without a helmet. So, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one. I, I'd like to see the numbers in terms of like how much it continues on after the first year. And as people figure out that they have to wear helmets, but it, yeah, I mean, that that's a huge number. And that's a pretty strong utilitarian argument I can get behind. So let's flip over. Let's talk about the state's rights issue. Cause yeah. this is a very, I, I learned some things with this one too. So apparently we should, uh, we should explain this a little bit for our, our foreign listeners, the whole States versus federal thing. Yeah. So it's a weird thing where originally all, when the United States was brought into existence, Every state was essentially its own little country, and there was this very, very loose federal government that didn't really do a whole lot. And over time, the federal government has become more and more powerful. And there was a number of people who were very, very much into states' rights. And they tend to kind of be conservative types. But that doesn't really matter. What matters is, is that there's a couple things that we really need the federal government for. One of them is things like the interstate highway system. Mm -hmm. So the federal government takes care of this, not state governments. And that's interesting. So in 1967, this is a big year for this. You you might wonder, well, okay, if, if all the States get to post their own speed limits, cause they're on their own little countries, why do all the States have pretty much the same speed limits? Because in 1967, they passed a law where the federal government could say, listen, you can post whatever speed limits you want, but if you don't make them these recommended speed limits, we're going to take away some of the money for keeping up your highways your your interstates so everyone's got the same fucking speed limits they did the same thing with helmet laws in 1967 and for four years 
you had to wear helmets like everywhere because every state was like, we're not losing our highway money because of helmets. Like, we're not doing that. Well, it was found that that encroached on states' rights, and that part of it was taken away. And then, what was it, 90-something, This like the different version of this came around. This has kind of gone back and forth a few times. But basically what it boils down to is that if it wasn't for this weird dynamic of the federal government versus states' rights, we probably would have moved to a helmet law in 1967. Like, this is before seatbelt laws. There were cars being made without seatbelts at this time. Yeah. Right? So even before seatbelts became an argument, this probably would have been sewn up, and we would have all just grown up and lived in a world where it doesn't matter. You just, you're riding a motorcycle, you have to wear a helmet, and this would not even be a thing. This would be zero debate. They tried to get this done a long time ago. Before they were even very good helmets, to be totally honest. Yeah. So this is both weirdly a pro and anti helmet law argument. You could make it from either side. And it's an interesting one because it do, it's one of the less emotional ones that people talk about. And it's strange. It's kind of like the gun laws. People come up with a lot of arguments that involve emotion to go pro and con, but there's really just this underlying constitutional issue that can't be resolved. And that's why the situation is the way it is. But people get very emotional about other aspects of it because it's had all this time to fester. Right. And helmet Mm -hmm. laws are exactly the same way. We would have come down on this very clearly a long time ago. If we could resolve this federal versus state rights issue on it, but we haven't been able to, therefore it remains very messy and everyone kind of comes up with a lot of different reasons to try to push it through. It doesn't matter. There's this larger underlying reason it hasn't been resolved. So until we come to some world where we totally get this associated, it kind of doesn't matter if you're for or against helmet laws. It's probably not going to be resolved in our lifetime in the United States because of this issue of whether or not it violates a state's right to do it or not do it. And therefore, you're going to have states going back and forth on it constantly. There'll probably be an overall trend of more states adopting policies towards encouraging you to wear helmets or flat-out helmet laws. But that's problematic because the uh, an argument we forgot to write down on the list I just remembered is an argument against helmet laws is there's no acceptable standard right now. Yeah. So you can put a helmet law into effect, but all they require is a DOT helmet, which doesn't mean anything. So the helmet law is useful, useless. A bad helmet law is worse than no helmet law. If you're if you're if your interest is safety and there's a very interesting thing for this in California, you can get out of a helmet ticket because the police officer can't determine what is and isn't a helmet that meets the DOT standard, right? There's a sticker on it. Well, you can remove the sticker. 
How can the police officer from his car determine whether or not you're wearing an approved helmet for the standard for the law? They can't. So it's an unenforceable law. And there are people that will just send you all the paperwork you need, all the arguments and everything to get out of a helmet ticket. And you can be an idiot and just ride around with no helmet in California. You'll constantly get pulled over and you'll constantly be handed tickets and you'll be constantly working to get out of them. But you can do it. And you can do it in other places too. It's an unenforceable standard really. So there's an argument that we shouldn't have a helmet law, at least right now, because the DOT standard, which we'll get into in a minute, is complete horseshit. And, okay, you establish a helmet law. Someone has to wear a helmet. Well, that's dumb because all they say is it has to be a helmet that meets the DOT standard. But there are helmets that meet the DOT standard, which provide close to zero protection. Yeah. So I'd rather not if if my interest was to protect the most people as much as they can be protected and reduce risk as much as possible I would not appreciate a helmet law which people can get away with just wearing half helmets Yeah and yeah it's a, it's a very weird thing at least in Europe there are even if there are three quarter helmets that meet standards and are legal to use at least there is an actual objective standard that all those helmets are head to held to that have to be certified and it's enforceable right yeah we don't have that here yeah so yeah we've we've covered a lot here uh now i do want to encourage listeners to try to come up with some other arguments that we missed Now, there's a lot of different ways we found out you can word the same arguments. So we're probably going to get some duplicate stuff sent to us. But if you do really have a different angle, an argument that we haven't covered, we'd love to hear it. Really. Because, again, we're still totally in the air on whether or not there should actually be a law. Again, wear a fucking helmet, people. And it should be a full face helmet, by the way, and it should be properly rated. But And it should fit. And it should fit. Yeah, it should not be used, all kinds of different shit. But, you know, if you're not on board with that, we can't really help you. So I don't even know why I'm preaching it. Anyway, uh, let's uh, – if so, if let's say for some reason we've been talking about this and someone's going, okay, you know what? Ah, I'm thinking about helmets more. I'm going to make this a bigger part of my riding. I'm going to take a closer look. We're just going to include now a little breakdown of helmet standards because they confuse a lot of people. And without fail, anytime I'm in a motorcycle shop and I see people looking through helmets, well, I usually just do a little thing to try to figure out like, do you know what these ratings mean on the back with people? I'm that guy. And I've not, I've not to this day run into somebody in person in a motorcycle shop that understands motorcycle safety ratings. It's not happened to me at all. So I feel like half of our audience is going to be up to, up to um, date on this and half aren't. So do you want to go through some of these standard swigs? 
Right, so there's only three that are of any relevance and two that are any good. There's, in terms of the stickers you'll see on helmets, especially here in the States, the first is DOT, which is you know, Department of Transportation's certification, which is really not worth anything at all for a couple reasons. One, the standard isn't very good. The The thresholds you have to meet are not very high in terms of what impacts the helmet can survive and reduce g-forces inside the helmet by the slide ratings you know for how fast you have to slide and protect your head is not very high and additionally it's self-certified so it's kind of a you can just put this on your helmet and then at some point we might request some helmets to certify at some point there's the department of transportation does not have the resources to test every helmet so they ask hey if you're making a helmet that meets these standards send us the paperwork this is like the one time with the u.s government you can like put the paperwork in the mail and then they'll say go ahead and do it we'll get back to you right yeah it's it's anti-bureaucracy this is the wheels have been greased on this so yeah you send it off then you can start putting the dot sticker on your helmets and there's a good chance no one will ever follow up on whether or not this helmet actually meets those standards which aren't very good anyway i mean it's isn't like the slide rating and only like 25 miles per hour or something like that it's like 25 30 miles an hour yeah it's it's weird it's are you going to make sure if you crash, it's definitely slower than that speed, people? I don't know. So, yeah, and then on top of that, it, the impact, it only has to test in one place on the helmet. And I've heard, like, the manufacturers can even engineer the helmets to just take the impact on the one place where it's going to be tested, and then it may yeah. be bullshit everywhere else. There's all kinds of problems with this system. There, If you look at a lot of DOT helmets, there is, you'll notice that instead of having like a continuous shell, there is a very common point at which there's like a little ridge on the helmet or, you know, where the back of the neck, the nape of the neck kind of comes up. There is a very common ridge along like that part of the helmet because that's the impact point that gets tested and it gets reinforced there like it's it's a it's not good so yeah so all these helmets that look like stormtroopers or the predator mask or iron man or the the star wars flight helmet the all all the novelty helmets even if they say they're DOT, there's a really good chance they're not even DOT. They're just costumes. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be better than nothing, but you really have no... It's a total roll of the dice as to what they actually are. And it's not worth your money, and it's not... It's not... They might be... When you say they're better than nothing, some people cling on to better than nothing. These are better than nothing, possibly in the case of, well, if your hand is going to be going through a table saw, I guess wearing a glove is better than wearing nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, 
even I mean a bad helmet is a lot better than no helm. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of actually doing a good job, and especially considering that I didn't mean to say your hand going through a table saw. I meant like you've got to like touch a table saw, like the blade just like okay, yeah. like okay, okay, I'll put a glove on, but I'm still gonna get fucked up. Like Yeah, it's it's um when you can when you compare like the cost to benefit ratio. Yeah, you may find some re- you may go f- look at an Arai helmet that's like $1500 and you think why is this so expensive? But you know, you can get oddly you can find Snell and ECE rated helmets for similar prices to what a lot of DOT helmets are. There is no reason to pick a a DOT helmet in that kind of 100 to 150 dollar price range. When you can have something that is actually certified that you can be confident in for not really a lot more money or even sometimes the same money. Yeah, I've seen high like helmets that hold like the highest safety ratings for around $180 before. But So explain these other ratings, ECE and Snell. Right, so ECE is basically the European standard. And this is, I believe, part of the EU... You know, all the regulations and all the the certification bodies that the EU has. And it's really a a much better safety standard that really all of Europe subscribes to. And in many countries, it is the minimum legal requirement for a helmet to be able to ride. Now, they do... Everything they do is focused on riding on the street on public roads so they care a bit more about slide ratings and impact protections but though they're also kind of built around a lot of the conveniences that modern helmets will have so they will check things like modular helmets and your and you know your flip down visors and they care about what the you know the the viewing angle through the visor is and all the little things that would help you out as a road user that's what they test yeah they're going to test the chin strap they're going to test yeah that kind of stuff so that's a it's a really good standard it's it's kind of the best all-round standard and it allows for a lot of things like modular helmets and your flip down visors and other features that our next standard won't let you have at all. And that is the Snell rating system. So Snell is a nonprofit organization that certifies helmets. And they kind of do all sorts of helmets. They don't just do motorcycle helmets. They'll do like ski helmets and baseball helmets and football helmets and all sorts of things. And really they kind of focus on the recreational market for the most part which is also why the international standard for road racing is a snell rated helmet now snell is probably the best impact protection and slide rating that you can have on a helmet their testing is really really extensive where you have to send them a bunch of helmets that they'll test. They 
randomized parts of the test so that it's not so that you can't game it. They have, I believe, some of the high. I believe they have higher impact requirements than than ECE does. And on top of that, after you get your initial certification and you start selling your helmets, they'll actually go and they'll buy helmets that you're selling through the through stores and then test them again to make sure that they're up to spec. Like they do a lot of stuff around Snell helmets to make sure that they're good. On the other hand, there are some things that they just won't touch. Like they don't give a fuck about modular helmets. They don't care about flip down visors. There's a whole bunch of like, I don't think like you won't be able to get like a Scully Snell rated anything that's, adding electronics that could uh, either compromise the shell or the foam. They don't care. They're not going to do anything with it. So it's a very good, it's a very, very good standard, but you're not going to see a lot of helmets with all those additional features get certified by. The one thing they will certify helmets with is, helmets that have the ear cutouts in the foam for speakers those can get snow rated well they definitely can because we both have helmets with speaker cutouts mine doesn't have speaker cutouts oh really no huh i didn't realize that right so that's like the only thing and i think that doesn't i think it's only on some weird technicality that i don't think they consider it a I think it's because the the impact foam is still continuous, probably. Right. There's not a break in it. It's just like, oh, it just happens to be thinner here. I guess that's part of your design. We'll test that and see if it still holds up. Right. So there you go. Yeah, I personally, since I got serious about buying legit helmets, have just had a Snell helmet. And I, I trust that ECE is a decent standard. And I don't know if the kind of writing that I do necessarily means I should always have to have a Snell helmet, but knowing that there's a guarantee with it, that it means something, if it says Snell or ECE, I definitely would never wander from either of those standards. And when there are plenty of Snell helmets that do everything that I need, and that's a a standard that really does mean the most, I just go for that myself. But I'm not going to look down on anyone that's riding with something that's at least ECE certified. You know, and that ECE certification, you know, they have ECE certifications for all sorts of things. When you hear about CE1 and CE2 armor, well, that CE is the CE and ECE. They have safety ratings for not just helmets over in Europe. They got them for your jackets and your boots and pants and gloves and all that other stuff. There's a basic level that they need. You know, everything has to be CE1. So you can't sell a jacket that doesn't at least have some foam padding in it. Because they take things just more seriously there for all, just, I don't know, the laws just allow them to do this. Or require that they do this. For better or worse, that's what they do. So knowing that they take their everything that seriously, there's reason to believe in products that are rated that way. I don't know. I've, the the DOT standard really is kind of criminal. 
it's it's so loose that I think it it crosses the line of criminal negligence on some governing well on the Department of Transportation's side. This is kind of like back in the old days where ship life jackets would be rated by how much they weighed because that would measure the amount of buoyant foam in them and then people started loading them with lead shot yeah to bulk them up cheaply like it's that kind of negligence in the standard well because there are so many holes in the standard and it's not been just documented by us here on this show but in many many other places that the DOT standard isn't really a standard. It is meaningless. There's no guarantee of anything with that sticker. Yet they're claiming that it's a standard. So, and, and passing laws that you have to wear a helmet that has the standard in places. The Department of Transportation must be aware. So at some point, someone's going to be, or has been probably many times, in an accident with a helmet where the helmet failed at what it should have easily done under the standard, even though that standard's a very low threshold. Someone's going to get an accident at 23 miles an hour, get their head split open like a watermelon. And then that person's family should sue the department of transportation. And that might be the only way we'll arrive at a proper helmet standard in this country. And yeah. that might eventually enact some sort of change or movement in the whole helmet law versus no helmet law federally, state-wise, whether people should or shouldn't do it. That might be the only thing that significantly moves the argument in one direction or another. Because I don't see anything else at you know the, the very base level of the law. Are we – can we make these kinds of laws? Should we make these kinds of laws – you know, for me, one of the biggest ones is, well, why would you have a helmet law around the bullshit standard anyway? It doesn't make any sense. So once you establish that standard, then all of a sudden you could move forward, especially on the states and federal rights level, right? How did they ever get this done with seatbelts? Well, they had objective standards they could work with for the cert, for for starters. So they were able to get objective data on how much of a benefit the seatbelts were actually providing. When you don't have a clear standard, how can you even measure how much helmets are, are helping public cost, public health, public safety, right? You can't even do these things. It all has to start with a standard and we don't even have one. So anyone that's afraid of helmet laws, I mean, at a certain point, I think a lot of helmet laws will probably even get repealed because they're all based off of a bullshit standard to begin with. And then anyone that is pro-helmet law, well, we should all think more about how we do want an objective standard in in the case that we just want to take better care of ourselves and buy helmets, we can make informed choices with, hey, and then... If you are pro-helmet law all over the place, you know, that law will mean a lot more if it does come into place should we have this standard. So anyway, that's the bigger issue than whether or not there should be laws to begin with. We don't even have square one. Yeah. So I think we've used up our ration of helmet talk for the year. This is true. But again, I've never heard anyone else take a unbiased look at 
at the whole subject from within the motorcycle community. You'll every law motorcycle law website has a little blurb on it, but it's very non-committal and it's very safe and bland and it doesn't really take anything to task. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to point anyone towards whether there should or shouldn't be a law. I'm pointing you towards the fact that personally, yes, you should wear a helmet and, you know, if you don't, you're an idiot. But in terms of whether it should be a law, it's very difficult. And I don't think we'll ever see any movement on it. Is is kind of where I've come to on this. In my lifetime, I don't think the United States will see movement on the issue. States will just continue to pop in and out of having laws. Oh, real quick before we get emails about it, we should talk about very quickly we can sew up the slippery slope argument. Oh, I don't want to I, I kind of almost don't want to address it because it just pulls you into every other like political tug of war. Well, no, we could uh, already address it with what we've already discussed. You know, they say once you pass a helmet law, then eventually motorcycles just become illegal because the same reasoning that, okay, you can't have a helmet because you have to wear a helmet because it's too dangerous. Eventually you can reason that, well, motorcycling itself is just too dangerous. But it's also kind of like, you know, first the smokers got put into the smoking section, then onto the patio, then onto the sidewalk, then down the street, then not in public. It's it's a similar similar angle. Right. And I get that, but I don't think it can move past the helmet law itself because I think because of the bullshit DOT standard, I I think a lot of helmet laws can get repealed very easily. Like, I don't see how a lot of them exist currently based upon the DOT standard itself. We already talked about how you can get out of DOT, uh, sorry, uh, helmet law um, fines because it's not enforceable standard. So the slippery slope one doesn't hold a lot of water right now anyway, because the laws themselves are pretty ineffectual that do exist. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, But yeah, I do want to hear other people's thoughts on this because I know there's, there's interesting aspects that we haven't covered in this. So let's see, we're getting close to two hours. Do we want to sum up a couple interesting things from Lamont before we go out? Some interesting things happen, but nothing super dramatic. We've kind of, this race kind of just continued every storyline that's been going without any real twists. Yeah. The story has not been advanced with this race. Yeah. I mean, Quadraro like made a really good push. And a lot of people are like, well, if he just qualified better he would have been in a podium position or, or, or maybe a win who knows what, but it's like, yeah, okay. I said this before Quadraro looks really good. He still hasn't really done anything. That's true. Like he hasn't produced a pot. He hasn't produced the podium yet, but it's going to happen. All signs, all, Everything we've seen out of him shows that it will happen eventually. It's, well, they all did for Vinales as well. Well, Vinales got results. I w- okay, they just in the previous race they qualified one and two on on the on the satellite Yamahas. Uh huh. And they both put in really good results in the race, 
until Quadraro shifter went out. We know he can do it. We know he can put the pace in. The question is just when is it going to happen? When are when when are the dice going to roll in his favor where he gets the right conditions, he gets the good qualifying time, and then everything comes together in the race? We know the potential for it is there. The potential's there. I just think it's a, a 50-50. I think he's going to get a podium before the championship is decided. I want to clarify that a 50-50 chance of him being what we think he could be is an extraordinarily high number for me to give. Yeah, Jack Jack Miller was the first person to pass Mark Marquez this year. And I mean, I would give Jack Miller a 1 in 4 chance of producing a podium or race win this year he's already got a podium oh yeah that's right okay well another one you know what i mean like Mm. or or a one in four chance of producing results better than quadraro just to clarify first person to pass marquez since qatar right yeah yeah, Yeah. i guess there were okay anyway um so yeah but it, it's not a guarantee. It's 50-50. But that's extraordinarily high odds that someone will start producing results that in their rookie season or whatever, right? Yeah, If you're going to base it on experience and things and funding and money and past records, there's a lot of writers you would think are more likely to do it, but in reality just aren't anywhere close. Well, they are a very well-funded... They may be a satellite team, but they are a very well-funded satellite team. Yeah, the, Patronus is the leading F1 team and has been for a long time. There's yeah. a lot of money there. Patronus is... where? What country are they from? Is it German? Uh, no, they're from... Let's look it up real quick. Because Repsol's the Italian petroleum company. Uh, Patronus is Malaysian... Malaysia, that's what I meant. Yeah, sorry, Repsol's the Spanish. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they are well-funded. They do have the talent. They may not just have the tech in the bikes, but they're, they're running pretty close. Yeah. And they're already showing it by, on several occasions, showing up the Yamahas. So, I mean, it, it's all there. It's just... When's it all going to come together? Because they still have the Ducatis to get past, even if Marquez drops out. So right. they do have a high bar to reach, but we've seen that it can be done, and it's it's all just got to fall. Everything's got to fall into place for it to happen. Okay, so let's think of some other storylines that were continued. Oh, so... here's something. What is it with all of the warm-up and cool down crashes yeah i think we've had like four this year this is breaking out like cold sores around a restaurant crew this (laughs) (laughs) this is not good (laughs) like i i don't recall before this year ever seeing a warm-up or cool down crash they happened i'm sure but they either didn't show them because it would be in poor taste on the on the broadcast to embarrass the rider with it, you know, at least on the cool down lap or something, or they just didn't happen as much. So they were rare enough that you didn't 
they didn't aggregate in your mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I can think of more than one a year. Right. And now we've had at least two or three races with one or the other. Yes, including two in this race. Yeah. So I have a theory about the warm-up lap crashes, and I think it's related to the the jump starts. People were saying, oh, why is there a big rash of people jumping the start this year? Well, there's not. We've just increased the standard on what constitutes a jump start because now every front wheel has the high-speed camera on it, which was not true in the past. So things that would have gone completely undetected before are now being detected as jump starts because we've just got this insane standard on it, right? It's like go back 25 years in the NFL and look at some plays that today would be clearly called out of bounds or whatever because of all the camera and computer technology surrounding it. Same thing's happening here. So I think all these riders going around the warm-up lap, I think they've just got not jumping the race start in their head, and they're not 100% there. It's a possibility. I've also noticed that like it's happening in Moto America as well. It, it's not just MotoGP. It seems to just be happening everywhere. I'm wondering if just between Dunlop, Pirelli... And Michelin, is there some new like trend in tire technology where they're struggling, where they've made it harder to get heat into the tires early on or something? Is there some weird... No, because they've just had warmers on the tires. Well, they do, but they're not up to operating temperature. They're just a little bit closer. Like, I don't know. It seems... Not enough for people to be crashing at 80% of race speed. If it's just really weird, though, I don't know, if it's not what they're used to. I think it's all mental. And the only thing that's changed for race starts mentally is not jumping the start, right? It could also just be a weird statistical blip. But we're going to follow up with this. We're going to keep this in mind. Because this is weird. There's been a lot more after-the-race decisions with time penalties as well. So this could account for people being up in their head after the race and crashing on the cool down lap. Oh, where it's like, oh, did I, I did I actually get fifth place? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. Cause they've, they've been fucking with with all the rules and you know, the place you finish or started may not be what it is. And you're kind of riding with that uncertainty and Uh maybe, yeah, it's a possibility. Okay, so I think we should move on to... I guess we can talk about Spargo. Yeah, we have to talk about Spargo and KTM. Again, this is another just continued storyline. So Spargo managed to finish ahead of Zarco, which has just made everybody except Paul Spargo even angrier about the KTM situation. Yeah, and I, I don't get it. They are... KTM is kind of throwing a bit of a temper tantrum where they insist on using the trellis frame, even though Ducati haven't done the trellis frame for a long time. I think it was Casey Stoner was the last person to ride a GP Ducati. That sounds right. Yeah. With the trellis frame. 
and after that, he was kind of like, ah, fuck this. Well, no, then you Rossi know. would have done it the year after. Oh, yeah, Rossi did it the year after, and then they bailed on it, and they haven't touched it since. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because they insist on using the trellis frame, and they've explicitly said, we're not switching away from the trellis frame because the reason we're in MotoGP is to sell motorcycles. They firmly believe in the whole concept of race on Sunday, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Well, the winning part kind of has to come first. Yeah. And they're committed to this to this thing because it's a it is iconic of the brand and they want people to see the MotoGP bikes and think I can buy a bike like that. But then they're pissed at Zarco who, when he was on the satellite, when he was on the Tech 3 Yamaha, set fastest ever lap times for qualifying on it. And now, you change. if the only thing you change in this equation is the bike, then it's probably not Zarco. It's probably the bike. And you're clearly making this move that everybody else moved away from because it wasn't working and now you want to get upset about it. It's a little bit of a temper tantrum. Well, they're in it now and they got to make the best of it and they got to try to do something. And mm, yeah, the the bike's terrible, but somehow now Aspargro managed to get this sixth place finish, which I'm sure he is celebrating like he's won the fucking championship because now all of a sudden the number two rider looks like the number one rider. And they're like, and he's like, you know, it's, it's like when, Someone, how to put this? Um, it's like if you fuck up at work, if you're the kind of person to point and be like, "Yeah, but like, what about Jeff, who was like 20 minutes late the other day, right?" Like, you know, like it's Espargo <sighs> getting sixth place is ecstatic because it's one a little bit better than he's really ever done. <laughs> And two, Zarco did that much worse. So he thinks he looks like a fucking superstar. But just getting sixth place will only be so good for so long. Again, what they want is like Suzuki always aimed for slow incremental improvement, consistent incremental improvement will eventually get you to race wins. This bullshit they're doing isn't going to fucking fly. So, um,. Not much else really happened in this. Again, uh, Lorenzo can't get a top 10, but that doesn't shock us. It shocks other people, doesn't shock us. Um, We know the results will come with time. Yeah. But, I mean, given what he did with the Ducati and where he finally got it to, we know he's capable of it and we know it can take time. So that's that's a long-term wait and see. Yeah. I guess the only other thing to really talk about is uh, Alex Marquez yes. winning in Moto2. Now, he needed a win. So personally, I feel good for him. But it, it's weird. He's almost put more pressure on himself. Because the assumption is he's just this eventual champion. And it, he, there's just been a few hiccups in the road. But how many years has he been in Moto2 now? Right. So if he goes the rest of the season without a win now, 
it's clear that he's not the talent his team and other people think he is. He needs to win this championship this season or he's fucked. He had a big dry spell and there were a lot of sort of excuses and reasons why now he needs to win the next few races. He has to put this together or I don't think he ever has a shot at GP ever. If he goes on a big winning streak now, maybe I'll even have to eat my words. But it's really put up or shut up time. You know, he may have even been able to put up with one or two more races of non-results and DNFs and whatever and excuses. But now it's all got to come together for him to just win races consistently. So if I were Honda... And I was looking, you know, we got we got Alec, we got Mark Marquez, arguably the best rider in the world right now. Oh yeah. And then you've got his brother Alex Marquez, not so hot. You were probably had this ridiculous fantasy of having the one and two bike in GP ridden by brothers. The marketing opportunities are amazing. Oh, yeah. It looks so good. You've got a great story there. And it's looking like it's not going to happen. If he can at least put together like third place in the championship in Moto2, what I kind of feel is the right move is that you take this opportunity, put out a V4 superbike for world superbike, that you can homologate and then you put Alex Marquez on it in world superbike and then you start winning in world superbike because it's been a long time since Honda had a top it's been what like 25 Wait, you years you can't do that because that means well, it's been like 25 years since Honda's had a you know a best in class superbike so you can't do that because there are weekends where World Superbike runs at the same time as GP. And then one of the brothers won't be able to have their dad there. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like, they have... Uh, what's what's their father's name again? I can't remember. I wanna, there's a weird clingy relationship going on here. Uh, Mark Marquez is what, 26, 27? And it's not like their dad's just present at the races, like cheering them on. I mean, they're all joined at the hip. Like, he's there constantly. I don't know that he needs to be there. I mean, Mark Marquez's dad probably spends more time with Mark Marquez than Rossi spends with Lucio. It's possible. It's weird. It's really weird. So, yeah. Uh, one of them... Oh, no. How weird would this be, though? Yeah. So, you get to a race where World Superbike with Alex Marquez and GP with Mark Marquez are running at the same time. Okay. You, you need and to he's got to go to one race and it's like, which one does he pick? This is like the, this is like the train track scenario. Right? Uh, this is the trolley problem. <laughs> this is the trolley problem. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, well, Mark Marquez has won more races and he's in GP and that's important. But Alex, this is like his first, my first time to like, you know, go see him and 
this other racing series like what do i do <laughs> this is where you get the telepresence robot and just facetime the whole time <laughs> the <telepresence There's>... <laughs> <laughs> okay so we are now talking about mark marquez's the marquez brothers father telepresence roboting himself to races i think we've achieved a nerdy level of MotoGP talk for this week all right that's probably a good place to close it out okay all right so um to close this one out remember we've got our super duper awesome biker gear club giveaway happening so go check that out and we're gonna remind everybody to stay safe and stay tuned send your emails to contact at nokomoto.com and that's gonna sew it up for episode 70 at nokomotopodcast.com did i fuck it up again yes you'll have that all right anyway y'all can deal with it here's the outro and i don't want to die I just want to ride on my motorcycle mm-hmm. cold 